Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. And hello, listeners. This is the News Items Podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, bringing you news items that we think are interesting, important, or both. It's Thursday, April 22nd. We'll start with two important science and tech headlines, and then we'll get into the news items. John, what do you want to talk about today? Well, there's a catastrophic second wave of COVID-19 cases that's unfolding in India, so that would be a starter. Well, that's devastating news. Then let's go to the world of finance and talk about leveraged buyouts. Private equity firms are sitting on a record $1.6 trillion of cash, and that money has to go somewhere. And for our last item, we'll discuss how the upcoming legalization of marijuana in Mexico will affect us here in the United States. Sounds good. Then, after the break, we'll play my interview with Steen Jakobsen, the CIO of Saxo Bank. Steen is the founder of Saxo Bank's famous yearly outrageous predictions, so I can't wait to hear what he has to say. But first, let's get to the science and tech headlines. First, we know it's been a very tough year for healthcare workers, and now three in 10 are considering leaving their professions, according to a poll by The Washington Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation. More than half said they felt burned out. And according to The Washington Post, we were facing a looming shortage of doctors and nurses even before the pandemic. It's a sad statistic, but not necessarily surprising. No, not surprising. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) A friend of mine uh, is a doctor in New York, and he told me the other day that he has reached the breaking point. He's completely burned out. And I suspect doctors like that all across the country feel that way, all across the world feel that way. Yeah, not just doctors. My father was a 35-year respiratory therapist. I thank my lucky stars he was lucky enough to be able to retire before COVID. He'd be right in the, th- right in the thick of it. I mean, so my, my hat is off to all healthcare workers and especially the respiratory therapists. But I think the Washington Post write-up, there were some quotes from healthcare professionals who talked about the sort of juxtaposition between this healthcare heroics, mean like, you know, hats off to our healthcare workers, you're our heroes, et cetera, et cetera followed by people not refusing to follow basic masking guidelines or take basic precautions to prevent the spread of the illness. So it's, you know, which is it? It's like if you want to make make life easier for the healthcare workers, you know, mask up. It's not that it's not that hard, right? It shouldn't be. It's it's just unconscionable. It really is. It's more than just words, right? Well, this is too depressing. We need to move on to something. (laughs) So let's move on to dolphins. That's always good news, right? New research shows that male dolphins recognize their friends' signature whistles. Researchers played whistles from an underwater speaker to see whether males who recognized those sounds from previous cooperative relationships would react. And they did, turning toward the sound in most cases. This was observed from drone footage captured above the waters in Western Australia. Here's what one of those whistles sounds like. By the way, these alliances among male dolphins were built on a specific kind of mission, keeping females away from rival groups. The research was published on Thursday in the journal Nature Communications. It warms my heart, John. The only thing you know about dolphins is just how smart they are. They really are. So, you know, it's not surprising that they're able to work as teams. Well, you know, this, this opens the door to dolphin news items coming soon. Could be. I mean, we have bird news items. We could That's do dolphin right. do uh, dolphins. news items. I'm there. All right, let's get into the news items. India just recorded the biggest single-day jump in COVID-19 cases of any country ever. 
A second wave of the disease has completely overwhelmed hospitals, and now 40% of new infections worldwide are happening in India. There are many possible factors here, John, including low vaccination numbers, new variants, political rallies, and a massive Hindu pilgrimage called Kumela. The weeks-long gathering has been attended by roughly 10 million people, and although Prime Minister Modi recently asked people to stay away, it is undoubtedly already a super-spreader event. John, what does India have to do to get this second wave under control? I don't see any other way but a lockdown. Yep. Modi has not indicated yet that that's what he's going to do. And he's obviously fearful of the economy cratering as a result. Yep. But 8% apparently of, of India is vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And these super spreader events, and it's not just the religious festival, although you mm-hmm. know that's obviously a huge deal, but it's weddings and restaurants and people gathering for all sorts of events and not social distancing, etc. 315,000 or 314,000 reported cases. We'll see what happens today and over the weekend. But if that accelerates, he's going to have to shut it down. India is obviously a huge and very populous country uh, with widespread poverty in large sections of the country. How is a lockdown even enforced? I mean, does India have the logistical infrastructure to enforce the kind of lockdown that's necessary to bring infection rates under control? You know, probably not, but you do what you can. Obviously, they're not going to be able to lock down every last town, every last slum, every last precinct. But you Mm -hmm. do as much as you can to do what they did in Wuhan, which is keep people indoors. Odd number of days, X number of people get to go to the market, to the drugstores, and on even number of days, the other people get to do the same. You know, Wuhan is the model, and that's what India is going to have to do, it seems to me. India is grappling with variants as well, John. I know in the Guardian's reporting, they noted that 65% of hospital cases in Delhi involve patients under 40 years of age. So the variants that they're dealing with are, are hitting younger populations pretty hard. Yeah. And the double mutant variant Mm -hmm. is really troubling because if that breaks through the vaccines, then you're talking about not just a super spread, but a double super spread or whatever the phrase would be. John, we mentioned that low vaccination rates in India have been a factor. Do you think there's a role for wealthier countries around the world to play in bringing vaccines to large populations like India in order to prevent the spread of variants that could ultimately affect their countries as well? Yes. I mean, absolutely. The problem is that politically that's difficult to do. Mm -hmm. The argument, let's say, in Colorado would be, well, we're not fully vaccinated here. Mm -hmm. We come first. We pay for this. So that's not just a U.S. problem. That's in every country. That would be the view of the electorate and probably properly so. But where there is excess vaccine, you want to get it to essentially super spreading countries, and India Mm -hmm. is certainly one of those. The the whole thing is a race between variant and vaccine. And the variants come fast and furious by the month. So it's potentially a catastrophic situation unless Mm -hmm. India locks down. Okay, let's move on to our next news item, John. According to the Wall Street Journal, quote, the mega LBO is back, maybe. 
We're seeing an increase in leveraged buyout bids worth $10 billion or more. Some may not go through. Toshiba, for example, turned down a $20 billion offer from CVC Capital Partners, and that in turn could lead to a hostile takeover bid. So with the private equity world sitting on a record $1.6 trillion in unspent cash, a mega LBO comeback isn't out of the question. You can say that again. Well, first of all, with all that cash, the least they could do is invest in the News Items podcast. Correct. Right? So, so that, that would be the first order of business. Make us an offer. That's... The, the mantra is too much money chasing too few deals, right? Yeah, yeah. And we saw 18 deals worth over $10 billion between 2005 and 2008. That's right. Since the Great Recession, there's been a lot less action. Are we, are we back in the action again? Can you break it down for us? I think so. You do? Yes. I would. Like, I think we're back in the action. I mean, Excellent. first of all, there's a ton of, look, aside from the $1.6 trillion in dry powder, that is the catchphrase. Hashtag dry powder. Dry powder. That's yes. it. I mean, it's big. There's a big pile of money. That's where it's looking to go. If you would like, you know, a breakdown of the deals that are happening on a daily basis, you can come over to Investable Universe. We'll break it down for you every single day. There's a ton of leverage <laughs> out there in the market. Absolutely. Yes. The Wall Street Journal's reporting, I think they were quoting uh, McKinsey figures. The average debt multiple in U.S. buyouts is seven times EBITDA compared to 6.4 times in 2007, so just prior to the crash. So average debt levels are running higher than they were in the run-up to the great financial crisis. And regulators, for what it's worth, have discouraged banks, again, according to the Wall Street Journal report, discourage banks that make buyout loans from making loans in excess of six times EBITDA. So there is a lot of debt that is financing many of these transactions enabled by ultra-low interest rates, which have been simply a fact of life for the past decade plus. The prevalence of covenant light loans, which make it easy to take out money. I mean, it's Again, it's there's a lot of dry powder, there's a lot of debt, there's a lot of asset inflation due to the low interest rates. It's pushing deal values higher. There's a lot of international players other than the traditional private equity funds. You have mega VCs, sovereign wealth funds, large institutional investors with just more and more cash to deploy. That's all pushing valuations higher. That's that's the story. A lot of money. You know, it's a little bit like get that money to work, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're sitting on that much money and the investors are saying, um, you're sitting on all this money, what are you doing with it? Yeah. You know, that's one thing that's going on. And I mean, there are plenty of reasons to be critical of private equity. And I think it's important not to look for heroes in the financial landscape because in most cases, it's a story with no heroes. But they're not just throwing monopoly money around. I mean, there are good and compelling reasons for private equity to make investments in companies. They have a lot more direct control over the operational decisions in that company. It's like as opposed to, you know, when you are a publicly listed company and you have the pressures of, you know, reporting requirements, regulatory requirements to list in the public markets, meeting the quarter, getting on the call and explaining to your investors why you did or did not meet your guidance this quarter and having your company's stock kicked around in an ETF regardless of what you do or don't do. I mean, <laughs> compare that to private equity where, you know, you can pull the curtain across the operations of the company and make necessary changes or make strategic changes that don't conform neatly to the fiscal quarter. 
So those are good reasons for a company to partner with a private equity fund. And then at the end of the holding period, like after what, five, six years, then you have an exit. Like that's sort of the uh, Girl Scout version of a private equity <laughs> transaction, you know, and they get like twice what they would get if you were doing that deal in the public markets. So I don't know. I mean, it's yes, there's a lot of money that's floating around. The deals are big. The debt is big. But at the end of the day, there's private equity is part of the investment ecosystem for a good reason. Yeah, that was another item actually in news items today was the was the VCs and yeah. Silicon Valley essentially speed dating deals. You know, you have forty eight hours to decide whether to invest in this company or not. Yeah. You know, usually that due diligence alone is somewhere between three and six months. Um, but that's how hot the market is. So yeah, it's good times for transactional agents. Let's say. Okay, time for our last news item. In September, Mexico is expected to pass a bill that will make it only the third country in the world to fully legalize marijuana. With a population of 125 million people, it would make Mexico the largest legal marijuana market in the world. Marijuana is now legal for almost half of the U.S. population, and there's talk in D.C. about legalizing it federally. Do you think that will happen, John? Yeah, I think it's inevitable. State by state, the dominoes are falling, and... You know, it's not like the federal government doesn't need the revenue. Obviously, they do. Mm-hmm. Modern monetary theory has it that we can just print money forever. But the states have to balance their budgets every year. Mm-hmm. And the states are running up against this overhang, which is public pensions and other retiree benefits, the cost of health care going up, et cetera. So they desperately need the money, and they'll take it. In the red states, absolutely don't dare raise taxes because they'll be voted out of office. Mm -hmm. So here it is, marijuana. So do you think that's a good idea? I think it's a horrible idea. From my point of view, the whole marijuana legalization thing is it's all about money. It's all about unfunded liabilities. And the fantasy is that marijuana is not a gateway drug, right? It's just a recreational drug. And the reality is that you're going to put more marijuana of much, much higher quality than, you know, and certainly in my generation, the potency is probably four to eight X. You're going to make that available essentially to teenagers all across the United States. That's, I mean, the the notion that that's not a gateway to a more substantial drug use is, is complete fiction. Well, I mean, you could also say that the ultimate gateway drug is really alcohol, right? Well, I mean, it depends on your point of view. (laughs) So for Mexico, with a population of 125 million people aiming to become the world's largest fully legal marijuana market, are they looking to cultivate this as an export commodity or strictly for domestic consumption? Mexico will win a price war. Let's Mm -hmm. put it that way. I mean, they've been in this business for however long. They're much better at it than anybody else. Mm -hmm. And if American growers and, you know, Philip Morris or whatever want to compete, good luck to them. Yeah. I mean, there's there's no better marijuana producer in the world than the Mexican drug cartels. All right. So enough about weed, John. Let's move on to one of my favorite people in all of Denmark. Yeah. After the break, we'll hear your interview with Dean Jacobson, the chief investment officer at Saxo Bank. Can you tell us a little bit about Saxo Bank? Yeah, Saxo Bank is headquartered in Copenhagen. I used to work there. Saxo distinguished itself very early on as a platform for electronic trading of foreign exchange and CFDs and equities and bond instruments and commodity contracts, et cetera. And he's the outrageous predictions guy, right? He is. He's the and he's been for, you know, a decade plus. So that is that is must see TV in European business television. You 
everyone eagerly awaits the release of Steen Jakobsen's outrageous predictions for the coming year. And they're not necessarily predictions that he thinks are actually going to come true, and he's not scorekeeping on whether they do. The idea is that it's an exercise in envisioning life beyond the commonplace predicted scenario. And I think you and I would, you know, would both agree, aside from world in disarray being a guiding editorial basket of the news items newsletter and podcast, I think we can all agree that there have been a number of unexpected slash black swan type events over the past 14 months <laughs> that standard operating models wouldn't necessarily predicted. So it's always exciting to get Steen's perspective on things. And he had a big outrageous prediction that I don't want to, no spoilers here, you got to listen to the interview, but he made a bold prediction. Let's go to the break and we'll be right back. Steen Jakobsen is the chief investment officer at Saxo Bank, one of the most provocative macro strategists working today, a veteran of the global financial markets for more than two decades, whose annual outrageous predictions are read around the world. Steen, welcome to News Items. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. For the benefit of our listeners, without getting too deep in the weeds, can you quantify from your perspective as a global investor the extent of the global monetary stimulus that has been unleashed since the start of COVID? So starting with the easy question, if <laughs> you allow me, I don't think it's only the monetary stimulus that we need to talk about. It is the combination of exactly the size of the monetary stimulus and the new fiscal spending that the world has accepted as something not only needed, but something which for most people, at least in the political sphere, seems to be without any cost. So we are by any definition in to a territory of extreme infinity, uh, both in terms of the willingness politically, but also the size of what goes on. It's just simply, it's out of this world and it's, it's, it's surreal for someone who's been in the market for 30 years. So in terms of the size and the magnitude and the significance of the stimulus, monetary policy has been quite accommodative for a decade plus, And yet it seems that we have entered some new realm with COVID. Can you maybe describe that for our listeners? This willingness and ability to spend infinite amount of money on fiscal spending boils down to basically trying to solve a free generational crisis, one being the inequality, which is the lower case side of the economy, where we're trying to make sure that everybody is okay, that we have some job stability in the economy. Just to clarify for our listeners, when you refer to the lower K side of the economy, you're talking about the model that shows our economy recovering in a K shape with some industries and people recovering quickly while others continue to struggle. So when you talk about the people on the lower curve, these are people who've taken the hit in the pandemic. So yeah, absolutely. And the second part is the more inspirational one, which is green transformation. And then thirdly, massive spend on infrastructure. We call it the three generational challenges. All of them have a huge amount of transfer of income from the government to the private sector. And through that, we will create, in my opinion, and to some extent, a lot of other macro guys that we will see some inflationary aspect of the economy because we really already have bottlenecks, particularly in the infrastructure sector. And that will come to fruition through over the next uh, two to three years. How do you respond to those who ask where the inflation has been for the past decade plus or who bring up like the technology is deflationary counter argument? What changed in the COVID-19 and what is significantly different is the amount of spending we see 
globally and synchronized. If you told me at any time in history going forward or in, in the future that Germany would run a 25% deficit fiscally, I would not have believed you. And clearly in the US, you saw not only Trump, but you saw that bipartisanly people are willing to spend money. So they disagree on you know how much and how much needs to be safeguarded by increasing taxes and the likes. But overall, there is a new optimism towards spending money that we've not seen before, despite the ugly uh, narrative that we have in Congress and in the Senate, they do agree on spending more money. It's just what they're going to spend money on. So even if this massive global monetary honest, uh, easing does prove to be very inflationary, do you think it's going to be long lasting or at least longer than the 12 month average above 2% that the Fed is willing to tolerate? Everyone has been you know, going after this 2% inflation target. Now the Federal Reserve as the first central bank globally says, you know, we don't care. We want to see actual inflation above a certain level for a longer term, what they call average inflation. So the institutional framework has changed and that will change the expected inflation. And maybe for your listeners, it's important to understand that somehow everyone thinks that inflation is something that you will see coming and which you will react to in a sort of glacier, slow matter. But the fact <laughs> is that 80% of inflation is expectation. It is you and your family being willing to pay additional costs to getting a car because there isn't enough semiconductors. So what is going on is that you have first the institutional framework being taken away. So there's no control on the top side of inflation. Then we have, due to the US-China rising sort of trade mercantile technology fight, we have bottlenecks in the economy. And then the pandemic created this massive amount of payouts to the lower K in the US in particular. The physical world today, Rebecca, is too small for the success and the aspiration of a combination of increase in transfer income, green transformation, and infrastructure overall. One challenge on its own, like dealing with inequality, would have been more yeah. than enough. Yeah. But all of these are inflationary. On the topic of economic inequality in the U.S., as you say, like the sort of lower leg of the K, I mean, thanks to you might say the easy money policies after the great financial crisis, monetary policy has been very easy. That's exacerbated inequalities in countries like the U.S., but it didn't create those inequalities. What I would suggest to you is that this culture of, let's say, tech companies or startups that are very richly valued, for example, and that reward the efforts of the lone startup founder and a tiny handful of his friends and disincentivize job creation and incentivize job disruption, that's been going on for like 20 plus years now. I mean, the markets have continuously rewarded that economic model. To what extent do you think that's become culturally entrenched and is not something that a Federal Reserve chair, for example, can really address in the matter of a few years? The problem from a market point of view is that we have no enforcement of monopoly or monopoly rules. A lot of these platforms that are successful and creates this inequality are driven on what is in legal terms defined as monopolies. They have been able to, through lack of anchoring in what sectors they're in, in the case of Facebook, they should be you know, treated like a publisher yeah. and not as an IT company and the likes. And there's a lot of arbitrage that has been done in the past. But I think the market concentration, which is the fancy word for monopoly, is the largest ever. When I grew up, there was, you know, 9, 10, 12 different brands in the same sector uh, yeah. fighting it out. And, you know, you could be number three and make it to number one. Today, if you are number one in a sector, you own 90% of the market. And what's left is the 10% for everyone else to, to fight for. To be honest, the biggest inequality I see is not between the rich and the poor. The biggest gap we have in the world today is between the young and my generation. Really? 
Yeah, Explain. absolutely. Certainly in Europe, but also in the U.S. So mm -hmm. my generation is the baby boomers are the, the most fortunate generation ever. We didn't get to see the war, which our parents saw, and we lived through lower and lower and lower interest rates through this period. Now we have a two-way market at best. Yeah. At worst, we have a steepening increase in both taxes and costs. The ability of a young person today, which is 20, 22 years old, to get into buying the first apartment and buying the first house is just impossible. For the same person to take an education at an Ivy League school or a great university, also impossible to access. So the social mobility is actually what I think is the biggest concern, mm -hmm. not only in the US, but also across Europe, that we are leaving a young generation behind. And older people like to say, oh, but they love this share platform and wherever. <laughs> but they only love it because they have to, they right? Have it's, to. It's, yeah, not it. it's not because <laughs> they don't want to own a car or an apartment. Mm -hmm. It's because they can simply cannot afford it. So they need to find solution that clears at a price which is significantly lower than having the ownership. Now, I know that your outrageous predictions are one of the most anticipated events in the European market cycle, if I may say so. I think it's true. Do you have an outrageous prediction you'd like to share with our listeners? Like, is Bitcoin going to crash the euro? There's been some speculation about that on the podcast in recent days. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, 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 I have too little hair to, to be involved. I, I will I will disclaim that I've been an early adapter in the portfolio yeah. already back in the autumn of last year. Oh. But my most outrageous call would be, I actually think the world is fine five years from now. Right. And, and oh, Ah, that's every, contrarian. What I've learned for the COVID-19 is that if anyone had told me that 12 months after the initial breakout of COVID-19, we had a vaccine and two years in, we'll be talking about the exit from this. I'll be, you know, mind you, I'm a bit pessimistic overall normally, but... Yeah. You are, but, but I, 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 but, I, but I think, <laughs> but, but I think the COVID nineteen response, the medical yep. response, showed us what we can do as a human generation. Mm -hmm. The ability, if we source everything together, and I think the yep. next up is is solving for energy cost yep. because energy is going up simply because we underinvested yep. yep. and because we put too much demand on it in battery and baseload yep. and, and the like. And from that, I think transpires a huge investment into the next generation of energy. All right, so we're going to buy copper, we're going to buy battery metals, we're going to buy oil, we're going to invest in last mile logistics, we're going to put a little Bitcoin in there. Is and that it? Not least, <laughs> I, I would say, but what you really need to do is to buy buy into people, believe in people. That's I, it. I think the, yes. <laughs> I, I think education and I think yep. uh, believing in that this new generation who's been left behind, they can catch up. If we do that right, we will have a phenomenal next uh, 20, 30 years ahead of us. And, and in that process, we will create a more balanced world. Steen Jakobsen, you get the last word. Let's vote Steen. Steen and Twitter. Come, come over here and, and run for president or something, will you? I've been asked a few times to run for president, <laughs> but uh, I'll tell you a funny story. So, you know, I've been invited by a lot of political parties, uh, particularly uh -huh. in Denmark, but also in Europe to come give uh, speeches, but I've yeah. never been invited back twice. So uh, I, don't, I don't think I have a great success in that line of business. The ugly truth with Steen Jakobsen. Yeah. All right. Steen, so good to talk to you. Let's catch up again soon. Thanks for coming. Rebecca, great questions and thanks for having me and uh, good luck to, to everyone. So, Rebecca, we've got the big three challenges and inflation on its way. Mm -hmm. What do you think of his argument? You know, I have to say, I thought it was refreshing to hear someone who was optimistic about the future of humanity. I took a lot of comfort in that. But more important, after yes. talking to him, what mm -hmm. do you think? Are we still with Jay? or are we... I'm sticking with Jay. And you know what? I'm even sticking with Jay after I heard Larry Summers yesterday. I have an item I'm writing about Summers and the Democratic Party, which should mm -hmm. hopefully be done by Sunday. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm really anxious to hear what, what, uh, what he said yesterday. 
But are you going to put anything on the summer's event on investableuniverse.com? You can believe it. It is going to investableuniverse.com. All right. So yeah. I'll make that. This will be kind of yeah. a synergy deal. I'll make that a <laughs> uh, an item. Look at that. <laughs> at, Synergies. At news items, which you okay. can find by Googling news items, yes. Substack, John Ellis. All right. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Billy Gardella, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back Monday afternoon with more of the news. See you then.